Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today, on December 13th, the Church remembers St. Lucia of Syracuse, also known as Santa Lucia. Lucia. Lucy was a virgin who was martyred during the Diocletian persecution in the early 300s. Like St. Nicholas that we heard last week, much that is written concerning Lucia is from documents that was written hundreds of years after her life, so not a whole lot can be said about her with absolute certainty. But we can say with certainty that she was martyred for holding to the Christian faith, and so the church continues to remember her. She was far from unique, though, in being a martyr, for during that Diocletian persecution, many were put to death. Concerning Lucia, she was born around 283, and we know that she died in the year 304. She was born and died in the same city, Syracuse, Italy, which is an ancient city on the southeastern shores of the island of Sicily. So if you think of Italy being that boot, just off of there to the south is a rather large island, that's Sicily, and she lived in the southeast shores of that island. This means she would have been around 21 years of age when she was put to death for being a Christian. Based on her father's name, he was a Roman, and based off her mother's name, she was a Greek. It is believed that her father died when she was about five years old and that her mother suffered from many health issues. But one thing they did have was a substantial amount of wealth. Her mom had arranged for her marriage but what her mom did not know is that Lucia had already taken a vow for celibacy and that her plan was to give her riches and her wealth away to help people out in their poverty. When man that she was supposed to marry found, found out that his dowry had been given away, which effectively would have become his treasure, he decided to do what any pagan, I suppose, would do in those days. And he told the government that she is a Christian. And so they, the government that is, martyred her by a sword that was thrust through her throat. The Diocletian persecution was an incredibly rough time for Christians in the Roman Empire. In the year of our Lord, 303, the Roman emperors, there were four of them that ruled each a region of the Roman Empire. They issued a series of edicts or laws which were intended to take away Christian rites and demanded that they comply with various pagan Roman rituals. 
These persecutions continued for the next decade until the Edict of Milan in 313, which then legalized Christianity throughout the entire Roman Empire. That is a huge reversal, almost miraculous. Of course, God had a hand in that reality that they went from the hardest and worst persecutions to now seeing that their Christian faith was legalized. Going from the greatest persecution they had ever faced to having their religion legalized, we certainly give thanks to God for the mercy that he had on them. But God also, through the persecution, strengthened them, separating wheat from the chaff, recognizing who the true Christians are, and making people even more bold to be a witness and to give testimony to Christ. When things are all given to us on our nice silver platters, while we sit in our easy chairs, we become lax, and we become weak, and we become unwilling to testify the truth. I'd like to summarize to you just very briefly those four edicts, those laws that were enacted in the Roman Empire beginning in 303 and continuing to 304, and in some places were in force throughout the next decade. The first edict was in February of 303. The, that edict prohibited the Christian assembly for worship. It ordered the destruction of Bibles, scriptural documents, liturgical books throughout the entire Roman Empire, and it called for the destruction of all houses of worship. The remaining three edicts were enforced at varying degrees in the Roman Empire, but this first one was enforced throughout the Roman Empire, from the Promised Land to the British Isles. In the British Isles, though, there was the least amount of enforcement for these next three, with the Promised Land and places like Thessalonica in the eastern region suffering from the greatest amount of persecution. The second edict took place in the summer of 303. It ordered for the arrest and the imprisonment of all bishops and priests. The third edict, which took place in November of 303, said that any imprisoned clergy can now be set free, but only if they offer sacrifices to the Roman pagan gods. And then the fourth edict in early 304 called for all Christians... All of them, men, women, children, elderly, anyone who confesses to be a Christian, that they are now all to be gathered into public spaces for a collective sacrifice, and all who refuse to engage in that pagan Roman sacrifice would be executed. It was in 304 that St. Lucy was martyred. Just eight years later, Emperor Constantine would convert to Christianity, and in the following year, Christianity would become legal. This day, December 13th, 
became known as the day in which the church remembers St. Lucia. Under the old Julian calendar, this day, December 13th, was the shortest day of the year. And it became known as the day to remember St. Lucia. You see, the name Lucia in the Latin, Lucia, means light, which is certainly a fitting person to consider on the shortest day of the year when there's the greatest amount of darkness covering at least the northern hemisphere. Customs gradually arose as the church remembered Santa Lucia, such as, especially in Sweden and throughout much of Scandinavia. Christians would continue to commemorate her life and her martyrdom. In commemoration of St. Lucia, girls, especially in Scandinavia, wear white dresses to symbolize purity and virginity. Remember, St. Lucia died as a virgin. But then they would wear a red sash to remember that Lucia died a martyr's death for being a Christian. When the girls would assemble wearing these white dresses and the red sashes, one would be chosen to represent St. Lucia. And so they would put a wreath on her head and the wreath would have some candles on it. And they would light that wreath up there's many other customs that churches have done or Christians have done to remember her. But there was a reason for the various things that they, the ones that I have described. Why a wreath? Why candles? Well, it was said that Lucia, in her attempt to get rid of her fortunes, to help out the poor, that she would try to carry as much as possible into the catacombs where Christians were hiding to escape the persecution under the Diocletian persecution. And so she attached those candles to a wreath on the top and put them on the top of her head, making her hands free so she can carry as much as possible to bring food and supplies to those who are suffering and hiding. During that time of suffering, many Christians were killed. It was horrible. But despite facing torture or murder, many remained faithful to Christ. Some church fathers reflected on this, saying the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Their faithfulness did not end in the church's destruction or downfall, as one would suppose, even if it cost the lives of many. Instead, the Christians were strengthened as they suffered, as they witnessed the martyrdom of their loved ones, as they remembered the saints who boldly testified Christ and him crucified in the previous years. When we consider their lives, we can see that they had it very difficult. And we, most likely, have not faced any level of persecution similar to what they have faced. 
But given that they had hope in the midst of their crosses and challenges, we too can see that we may have hope as well as we face whatever crosses, trials, and challenges in this life. Since God brought them through their tribulation to be with their Savior Christ, we can be confident that God will also bring us through our tribulation to be with Christ. This past Sunday, we heard of the return of Jesus on the last day as Jesus prophesied it. He instructed those who followed him that when they see these things take place, to look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. We, as God's chosen people, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, added to God's family by the waters of holy baptism, we fix our eyes on Jesus. What we often want to do is to fix our eyes on just the here and the now, to address those issues that we feel are the most important. Whatever ache or pain that we have, whatever worry or matter of guilt that we're thinking about, we want to fix our eyes on them. And while it is always easy to only consider the various circumstances that surround us, as Christians, we look beyond our present situation. One thing we do is we look to our past, our history as Christians. Days like today, we can remember St. Lucia. But even more so, we look back and listen to God's saving word, and the salvation history as it is revealed in the sacred scriptures. And when we do that, we then also are looking back to the faithfulness that God has given to many in the scriptures, and above all, the faithfulness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set upon him endured the cross and suffered the shame dying to take away the sin of the world. And as we remember Christ looking back, looking beyond the here and now in our present circumstances and situations, we remember our Lord's word when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, truly, I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In this reading, Jesus, of course, speaks of those who have crosses, 
who face them in the here and now. But we are reminded of the one who is speaking, so we look back to Christ and what he has done for us. And then Jesus also speaks of what will happen to come. So in addition to gazing back, looking to the scriptures, remembering what Christ has done for us, we look forward. That's what the martyrs did as they endured the suffering and persecution. They look forward to what they were going to receive in Christ. And that reading that I just read to you, which was from Matthew 16, along with the reading that we heard from Matthew 13, Jesus connects faithfulness to receiving the gift of eternal life, to being ready when Jesus returns, to being given that crown of life, to being judged not guilty when Jesus returns. And so, as we endure whatever we may be going through in the here and now, we also look forward. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We rejoice that God will fulfill his promise and that Jesus will come back at the time that he has appointed and that we will see Christ face to face with our own eyes. And so we look forward to his return. And we know that when Jesus returns, he will declare us to be justified, not guilty. He will acquit us of all wrongdoing, and he will receive us into his eternal kingdom. He will give us glorious bodies, and he will wipe away all tears forever. These blessings await us, and we look forward to that day of resurrection when we can meet these martyrs who have gone before us with the apostles and the prophets and with all the saints, even those who have long been forgotten in this world, whom Christ never forgets and who are with the Lord. And so we press forward in this life with the confidence that Christ Jesus will get us through each and every day until that time when he receives us unto himself. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.